You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Shirit Sana, who is using Django and Python to create a service that helps designers find a job by using their previous projects as a basis for their skills instead of a resume. Shirit, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the site that we're going to go over today? Uh, sure. So a small background about me. Uh, my name is Shadaj, and I completed my master's degree in human-computer interaction in December 2019. Since then, I've been working as a product designer. And during the before COVID, actually, uh, me and my co-founder, we started working while applying for jobs. We saw that there's a huge gap between how UX designers are hired. So we wanted to fix that. And to fix that, we wanted to take in the projects into consideration. And having a computer science background, I wanted to use that to actually take in all the projects. And, you know, the idea was to kill out the resume, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So the platform, what it does um, basically is you can upload all your projects in one platform and it extracts all the skills that you would extract from a resume, but it extracts that from the project and it compares to the job description that you are applying to and then make sure that you actually match skill-wise to that project, uh, to that job. Ah, very cool. So you, like, let's say I'm an end user of the platform. I just basically link to other projects I've done and your system kind of just like matches me up to potential employers. Like, how does that work? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a whole workflow that we have for project uploading. Um, you would just paste your link, and we would go to that link, fetch it from the, uh, the Django backend, fetches a lot of things like title, uh, the description of that page, whatever the images are, and you can basically upload your project uh, skill-wise. So you can choose which skill you want to have uh, showed up, showing up on your project. Uh, so UX design, what tools do, do you use, who did you collaborate with, soft skills, uh, everything that comes up in the page will show up in the project. All the projects combined, say you have four projects, will combine all of these and use that as your profile and compare that to a job description instead of just one resume. The problem with resumes, people want you to adjust your resume for every job description. It's It's literally an impossible task. Uh, so instead of that, just have everything in your profile and compare that to the, to the job description. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember my friend was looking for uh, a computer programming related job and like he had to send in something like 150 different resumes that were all a little bit tweaked for each position he was in. And it was like extremely tedious to get that set up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a numbers game, actually. It's it's a pretty bad way to hire people. Uh, <laughs> nobody wants to work on the solution. Everyone just says it is what it is. Right. So as for the site that you've developed, did you develop this by yourself? You mentioned having uh, a partner there. Did he also develop it or is it just you? Uh, no, I'm the only uh, technical uh, co-founder. He handles everything on the business and marketing side. Nice. And then as for like when this product was launched or the service, uh, when was that? Uh, so I started building this. We actually conceptualized this in January. I started building this in February. By March end, we had a closed beta, and since then, it's been in production. It's been live. Okay. So in about, I don't know, what what would you say, like a month and a half, two months is what it took you to develop like an MVP? Less than a month and a half. Nice. Yeah, that is very fast. So 
I guess uh, the next question here would be like, what motivated you to use Django and Python in the end? Um, so I, I, it, it, it's a pretty interesting actually. This didn't start as a website. It just started as me trying to use some NLTK uh, uh, scripting something, trying to find out if I can get skills out of. So I didn't want to pay for job scan. So I did manual scraping of um, whatever skills I could find from the job description and see what I could put it in my resume. And I thought, why not just uh, build a website that does it for all my projects? And then since I was already using Python and I found out about Django, which pr integrates pretty well with all the machine learning models compared to all the other uh, like PHP or uh, Ruby and Rails or people would use. I actually have never worked on Python before this. Uh, before January and I this is the first time I started using Python but the one reason that I chose Django is because how easy it is to build things I just wanted to try it out because people suggested on reddit that I tried out I did and within three days I had uh, not even three days I think it, maybe two days I had a login and a full user registration setup which usually takes about a week in any other platform yeah, that's amazing. So it's like you don't really have any Django experience, just limited Python experience. You read some posts on Reddit and like a weekend later you have like the core of your app up, at least authentication wise. Yeah. Very cool. So as for using Django, are you taking advantage of some of the things that it has built in, like besides the authentication? Like are you using the admin feature or no? Uh the admin feature uh by admin feature do you mean the admin dashboard? Yeah, like the built-in dashboard with Django for creating like an admin backend. Yeah, but I kind of I kind of tweaked it because I didn't like the admin dashboard, so I kind of uh, extract all the logs now, um, and I have a custom script that exports the logs, and I it's it's not a beautiful UI. It's just what I need to see. So for front end, for example, I use Sentry. I didn't want to use Sentry for Django as well. Uh, so I set up a custom backend, a uh, custom UI that fetches the logs, and I see what happened. Uh, I do use the admin dashboard, but not that much. Right. So if you use it, it's kind of just for you to look at, you know, certain things about your system. It's not something that like your end user would ever see. Uh, no. Okay. Now for the app itself, do you have it broken up into a couple different Django apps, or is it just like a single monolithic app with like one Django app, or is it broken up into maybe microservices? How is this thing laid out? So it's one Django application with multiple app apps inside it. So you, you have like start project, right? Uh, the command that creates a Django application. So that's pretty much one Django application, but there's diff different components inside, I would say. Okay. Do you want to give us like a high level overview of maybe some of those components that exist? Yeah. So there's one component that allows people to, so there's a profile uh, picture feature that we upload to S3. So there's a there's a component for that. So every time you upload a new picture, it, it pushes it to S3 and updates the UI simultaneously. Uh, there's one that uploads all the uh, projects and everything, all the information that we have to Firebase. Now, we have the Firebase is redundant. Uh, the actual single source of truth for the application is the Postgres uh, database, but the Firebase is what we use for the machine learning algorithm to learn. The next application would be user profile, which is pretty much an extension of um, what Django actually recommends that we extend the already provided user template that's that's already there in Django. The others, obviously, there's a machine learning component that's 
there's a scraping component, there's a machine learning component, there's a comparison component, uh, there's an API uh, component that, uh, you know, allows, uh, that creates endpoints. I think that's it. Oh, there's a project component. I <laughs> forgot about that. Project and job job post. Right. Can't forget those. Those sound pretty important to the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when it came to all these different apps, though, I mean, you rattled off like, what, like eight or nine of them. Uh, did you kind of just tackle them individually as you were just adding new features to the site? Or did you kind of do like a little bit here, a little bit there? How did that work out? Uh, so initially, I didn't have a custom user profile. I just used the default user a model that comes with Django and it was a nightmare. Uh, so I, it kind of took me a while to understand what's happening because none of the instructions were clear on the website as to how I exactly wanted to extend it. Uh, so it took me a while to understand that. But once I did, um, I would say it was a little bit of everything. So working on S3 you, and Firebase, you find out that you need something else in the user profile. So you add that. Then you go back to S3 and you see, you make sure that the uh, however you're uploading it is the right way or the file name is the right thing. Um, you know, because each user should have one unique file name uh, for their profile picture. So you need a feel for that as well. So you add that and you go back to the um, uh, S3 code and you adjust it. So it's pretty much going back and forth between each component. Right. Okay. So when it comes to those file uploads here, so I'm not like a, a Django developer professional, but I am a little bit aware of what's included in Django. Are you using the built-in like storage feature of that or no? Uh, no, I did use that, but it creates its own complications. What it, uh, at least from what I know, what that does is it uploads all the static components to S3 and that's not what we want. Uh, at least that's not what I wanted. I wanted to upload each individual file for each, um, so each user should have their own profile picture, uh, and each project should have its own image, and each job description or job post should have its own image. Like when you see on LinkedIn, uh, each company has its own logo in the job post. So we wanted, uh, I wanted that kind of functionality, and that is not offered by the storage services. So you kind of have to, um, I think it's called, yeah, it's called Border Three. And that allows you to use all the AWS or any other uh, service on AWS, including S3. Uh, so we use that and to upload and retrieve files. Okay, and that's the official SDK for Python and AWS, right? Yeah. Okay. So are there any other features of Django that you happen to use here, like channels or anything like that, or no? Um, we don't use channels yet, but we do use Celery. All it does is send out emails and a few other tasks, um, just making sure everything is consistent. So there's a checksum uh, for every project that we scrape and every job post that's uploaded, there's a checksum. So it makes sure that the checksum on Firebase and on the Postgres database is the same. If it's not, then it checks uh, whichever timestamp is new or it just updates the other one. Uh, so Celery does that. Other services, well, there's Django REST framework. Uh, that's pretty important. Uh, <laughs> that's what makes the whole thing work. Right, so maybe we can get into that a bit. So it sounds like maybe this is like an API-driven app with uh, some type of JavaScript front end. It's not like using Django templates for the majority. Do you want to clear that up? Yeah, no, it doesn't use the template. It, uh, so the front end is in React. Oh, okay. Do you want to just give us like a, a heads up on like what made you choose that type of application design versus using something like Django templates? Yeah, actually, um, before this, I have built websites and I used to use Ruby on Rails as backend and React as frontend. So I kind of had that in mind. 
uh, before I came to the project that I want to use React for the front end, but I still wanted to give Django a try and see how templates work. And uh, to be fair, Django templates are pretty powerful and it's pretty easy to use as well. You can build uh, websites with templates very very fast. Like within a day or two, I had uh, a bunch of pages ready. But the problem comes uh, when someone wants to create a mobile application. So we started seeing, um, this is where my co-founder's role came in. He started monitoring how people were accessing our, uh, you know, website. Most of them started using phones to access the website. So we decided to go a route that allows scalability. So down the road, if you want to launch an iOS app or a Google, uh, you know, Android app, we want to be able to use the same uh, backend for that, those apps as well. So we kind of decoupled the whole thing and said, okay, the front end should be in React, the back end will be in back end, uh, sorry, Django. And if there's any other future app, we just use the back end uh, API in Django and just create the app as a front end. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And there's a lot of good stuff to unwind there. Like given that you do have some experience here with Rails and Django and, you know, we're not, you know, you don't necessarily need to call out Rails as being horrible and you switch to Django because you wanted to use it. But like, given your experience with both frameworks, like, well, how was the experience like to develop an API with both Rails and Django? Was it better for one or the other? Like, what are some of the pros and cons maybe? Uh, <laughs> it's actually uh, something I've been uh, thinking about as well. Um, I, I I won't lie. As soon as I started coding in Django, I think a week or two within the project, I was still considering going back to Rails because I couldn't understand anything that was happening. Uh, but it's the initial, you know, learning curve that you have to go past. Once you are in a comfortable position with Django, it's way better than Ruby on Rails because Rails is not exactly meant for a scalable project, I would say. I have tried scraping projects with Rails and it doesn't work well because Ruby scraping code isn't the best. It, it isn't the efficient, most efficient way to do it. Uh, so it really depends on what your application is. If you're building something like an e-commerce platform, then Rails is the best way to go about it. Uh, but if you're so integrating something that, that's, like we, we were integrating a machine learning and a scraping model, and those are in Python, that's the only language to go about it. It's either that or C++, which nobody uses for web. So once you have that in Python, why you use Ruby and Rails? Just have a backend in Python. All you need to do is uh, import uh, your folder dot whatever your file is and import it and use the uh, code as it is. It's as simple as that. Right. So I guess maybe the takeaway there is like since you're primarily have like a machine learning type of uh, application, Python was just a natural fit. And the API uh, Django REST framework made it a little bit nice to create that type of web backend. Yeah, like I said, it started out as a Python project, not even a web application. So it was the other way around. Instead of building a website first and then the machine learning model, we built the machine learning model first and then the web application integrated that into the web application and then into the front end. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a very smart way to go about it because it's like when you're working on, you know, the back end code without even thinking about like a web component of it, it's like you can really iron out you know, how the application will work, the business logic, the domain, you can flesh it out. And then after that, it's like, well, you know, now the quote unquote easy part is just making like the web interface for it. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That, that's true. Yeah. So when it comes to this application, do you have this broken up into two separate Git repos, like one for the back end, one for the front end, or is it just one monorepo? Oh, uh, no, it's two different repos. 
And uh, I know I don't expect you to know the answer off the top of your head for this one, but do you know like roughly lines of code for the back end, front end, just so we have some idea of like what the scope of this project is? Yeah, I did do that. Um, I think for the back end, it was around 200,000 lines, a, a little bit more than that. I think a couple hundred more than that. Uh, for the front end, it was around 78,000. Wow. So you've been uh, pretty, pretty productive in this uh, COVID times here, writing, you know, like a quarter million lines of code in a couple of months. Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually pretty thankful this happened. It's a bad thing to say, but, <laughs> you know, I, working uh, right now, like I said, I work as a product designer. So I lost a lot of time traveling from San Jose to Cupertino. It's like an art drive. Uh, so you lose about two and a half to three hours a day just in traveling. And once the lockdown happened, you, you pretty much have a lot of time to work on other things. Yeah. So what was like your work ethic to get that much code written in such a short period of time? Was it just like monstrous sessions every day, like 12, 14, 16 hours? Or did you just like get really efficient with your time somehow? Uh, initially, I would say it was like other than working hours, I pretty much that's all I did, worked on the platform. Uh, but it kind of died down and now it's pretty much um, it, like it's a balance, right? You first develop the product, then you market it, you get users, then you develop more. So we are in that transition phase. So we have the uh, closed beta. I wouldn't say an MVP uh, because our MVP has much more features, which I think we'll get to later. But uh, what we have right now, we're trying to get users on a platform, get their feedback as to what they want and build more features. So we're in that phase. So it kind of died down, but initially I would say I was working on this around six to seven hours every day through the through the nights, uh, apart from the regular working hours where I work for the, for the, where I work right now. Wow! So not only were you working a full time job, but you also did this on the side. Then not e you didn't even just do this full time; it was like a second job almost. <laughs> yeah, and the biggest thing is those two jobs aren't even the same. I work as a product designer, and this is a completely different like a web development plus machine learning plus NLP project. Right. Wow. Hat, hat definitely goes off to you on there. That's a, it's a lot of programming to get, uh, <laughs> to get going. Thank you. So you mentioned this is, you know, kind of like a machine learning type of app and you name drop that you're using NLTK. Do you use any other libraries as well? Because machine learning isn't my specialty. Like what makes that a good library for this project? Uh, we actually ditched NLTK. Uh, we kind of use Spacey now. Um, not kind of, we actually use only Spacey now. Uh, we kind of phased NLTK out because NLTK is meant for research purposes. So, for example, you want to sort an array. Do you really care how it's sorted? For production purposes, you don't. You just need the sorted array. So NLTK gives you the power of choosing which algorithm you want. Spacey has already chosen the most appropriate algorithm for web platforms, and it does the work for you. Uh, behind the scenes. So if you want to extract some information, uh, spacey code is like maybe 10, 15 lines, uh, but the same in NLTK will be like four or five different files with you choosing which algorithm, adjusting each parameter, the error rate and everything. It's just unnecessary work. Right. So it almost sounds like maybe, you know, from my naive point of view, it's like spacey is more of like what Django is, whereas NLTK is kind of like a lower level thing where you need to make like 20 decisions instead of just picking what it tells you to do with maybe like one or two knobs to turn in. Yeah. Spacey actually claims to be an industrial, you know, NLP processor. Right. So do you want to give us like a, maybe a high level overview of what types of problems that library helps you to solve? Like what type of machine learning problems do you do in this app? Uh, sure. So 
usually what you do the most basic thing that you can go do with spacey or any uh, natural language processing uh, framework is identifying entities so even right now if you go to spacey website and just type in some random sentence uh, it will identify uh, entities like google or cities like san francisco or um, you know anything that's a noun uh, and there's a bunch of other things like dependency like the basic english sentence structure um but what we wanted was something different we wanted entities but not the entities that already exist uh we don't want to identify san francisco that's pretty useless for ux designers uh we want to identify skills uh we want to identify tools uh those are entities as well but different kind of entities but there is absolutely no database out there for this so if you want to train an algorithm to predict the weather tomorrow um there's a bunch of free open data sources for that but there is no free or actually even paid data sources for job descriptions or projects so you kind of have to collect that on your own and train it for yourself so what we do is uh, initially we started out with a matching algorithm so what that does is it looks for exactly what we are looking for so if you give it user experience design it looks for user experience design pretty close to what exactly string matching is uh, but over time when you have the matching algorithm of identifying these entities out of the job descriptions then you can start training your machine learning algorithm and it's part of spacey so it's it's all in one okay so i guess like from an end user's point of view what this translates to is like after they supply the link to that project like maybe one thing that your application would do is give you a set of tags that are associated to your project it's kind of like photoshop sketch illustrator or you know whatever design tool someone might be using is that kind of like one thing that you're trying to solve yeah exactly let me put it this way uh when you apply for jobs you have everything on your resume that's supposed to represent you but every time you go to a different a job portal say you go to greenhouse for one company you go to google careers for google uh you go to uh workday for some other company you have to input the same information 200 times for 200 different positions um and it's pretty pointless and like fruitless to do that why not put all that information on your uh project extract from there and then use that as your profile let let this profile represent you it's your work so yeah we do exactly that we identify all these skills soft skills hard skills uh, we actually have a bunch of categorization that we're coming up with we identify what uh, hiring managers and recruiters are looking for so that they can see those kinds of insights about a candidate about the general insight about every candidate so yeah yeah no that's very cool i like the idea of that like me as a developer i kind of just like going heads down writing some code you know open sourcing some stuff like I don't want to worry about the boilerplate of like filling out a resume. So it sounds like you're doing that, but from like the designer point of view, they can just sit back, make portfolio pages, like whatever they do, and uh, not worry about, you know, the nuisances of keeping resumes up to date. Yeah, we actually thought about like I said, we actually thought about killing out the resume, but I don't think people are ready for that. They they still look for a resume from everyone. Uh if you tell them this is what the candidate is, the first question they ask is where's the resume? So <laughs> kind of have to adapt the market right uh so we try to build the resume from all the projects and the resume that they upload so we we combine everything and then we push that out of the profile ah yeah very cool 
So now maybe we can switch gears a bit and talk about like the rest of your tech stack. So you did mention that Postgres is your single source of truth. You you know you have Celery thrown into there. Do you use Redis as your backend Celery or something else? Uh yes, we use uh, backend as caching for Celery and caching. Okay, so you have Redis there working towards caching. What exactly? Uh, so like I said, we have a huge categorization of uh, all the skills of the UX skills, UI skills, user research skills, soft skills, domains, and whatnot. We have like 15 categorizations. Um, and it's all on Google Drive. Uh, like a, it's, it's basically a CSV file. So every time when you, um, when you upload a project, the, what the backend does is it ex- extract, extracts all the HTML contents from whatever the link you've uploaded. And it compares that using the matching uh, rule in Spacey to whatever the categorization we have in the CSV file. So the most basic thing is caching that CSV file. So it doesn't have to, you know, process that file every time you upload something. And the other caching is, uh, right now we have only caching for user profile, this categorization, the CSV file and your scans. So we call it scans. So basically when you upload a project and compare with the job description, that's one scan. Uh, so we cache scans as well, but that's only for like 30 minutes. Oh, okay. And that CSV file, do you know roughly like how many rows are in there? How many entries? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> like are we dealing with, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, thousands? Uh, not thousands. I think it's, I think it's between 100 and 150. Right, but still, it's kind of nice not to have to read that every single time you do that comparison or lookup. Yeah, I actually noticed that the so you, in npm you can do a load testing. Uh, there's actually an npm package called load test or load testing, uh, and you can just send two thousand requests uh, with three requests every second, and you can uh, load test your server, and it was pretty bad. Uh, so I kind of had to implement caching, and this actually brought down the server response time almost to almost half. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. Well, then again, who who knows what that initial time was, though? Did you bring it down from like, you know, 100 milliseconds down to 50 milliseconds or like 500 milliseconds down to 200 or 250? Uh, uh, so a thousand requests with two requests every second uh, took about 50 seconds. Uh, oh. And this was just for the CSV parsing, not, not scanning, not comparing, not running spacey. Uh, and it actually brought, caching actually brought it down to uh, about 22 seconds. Nice. And now, you know, that 22 seconds or whatever, that's all happening inside of a salary task, I imagine, right? It's not as part of like the request response cycle? Uh, right now it is. Okay. Is that something you're working towards maybe changing around or? Uh, the reason we didn't implement it is I actually calculated it and I think it'll reduce from 22 to 15 or maybe even 10 putting that amount of time in improving that performance or building a new feature. So that's kind of a balance that you have to manage. Uh, so we kind of chose to build a new feature and focus on performance later on because it, it works. It's, it takes about, so all the way of the user, user journey from uploading a project to comparing it to a job description, it takes around, a, I think, 45 seconds. Um, I think that's manageable. And if we have a good internet connection, it takes even about 32 to 33 seconds. So all we will be doing by improving the performance is bringing it down to 20 seconds. Uh, do we really want that just for one feature? Probably not. 
Okay, so earlier you mentioned that you are using NPM to install some load testing tool, and that reminds me here, when it comes to dealing with your front end, do you have all of this set up with Webpack or something else? Yeah, Webpack. Did you look at a whole bunch of different alternative ones? I know a couple of years ago, it was like 85 different choices and Webpack was so hard to configure. Now it's getting a little bit better. Like, what's your experience with that so far? <laughs> Actually, uh, there's, there's a never-ending option in that. But since we wanted to focus more on the backend rather than focusing on the front end right now, we kind of use and design for the most part. So it comes with, so if you go to and design pro, it kind of comes, it's a full fledged package. So it comes with a bunch of features. It has Webpack installed. It has UMI, which which involves, includes Redux Saga, which is a modification of Redux. Uh, a bunch of other things that makes production so much easier. Like instead of creating manual routes in um, React components, uh, you can actually just have a JSON like uh, form JSON formatted uh, routes, and it populates the sidebar, the routing just from that one JSON array. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard about that tool before. Do you want to go into like a little more detail about it? It sounds like it's like kind of like a, almost like a like a pre-built theme, but on steroids, like almost like a framework to some extent. <laughs> it is. It actually includes a bunch of things. Like if you want to show any charts, it has everything, all the kinds of charts you want, a, a spider chart, a bar graph, a pie chart, everything. You want to use user profiles, it has everything built in, avatars. Uh, you want to use icons, it has all the icons built in. What else would you want? Uh, uh, any component that you would want. Say, the biggest complication that I face right now is the stepwise uh, form in React. When you want to implement something, uh, like right now when you upload a project, you first the first step is pasting the link, and then you fetch some information, like the title, the summary, the image, and then the next step is the skills. Uh, you can manipulate the skills, whatever you want to be there and what you want to add. So things like these, it's already pre, uh, I wouldn't say pre-built, but the infrastructure is pre-built. Uh, all you have to do is use the Redux stores that's already there. And the Redux stores in Andesign works very differently from uh, vanilla Redux, how it works in React. Uh, so each page has its own store. Um, so if you go to user profile, it has its own store under that folder. So, uh, and if you go to the projects, it has its own store under that folder. So you don't mix up two stores. You don't have one single store for the whole app. It kind of, uh, it's divided into each component and that really helps. Interesting, yeah. So like using things like Redux is a little bit uh, above my pay grade. I haven't really developed apps like that. So I'm going to punt on that and uh, switch this over to maybe talking about the rest of your tech stack. So you did mention Postgres, Redis, Celery, uh, using Gunicorn with Django. Do you happen to be using Docker in development or production or no? Yeah, so let me explain the uh, the whole flow. We do use Docker, and in Docker we have the Redis, Celery, Django, and uh, what else? And Postgres. We have all this running under one Docker, uh, you know, image. Uh, not image, like under single Docker container. Now, above this, like ideally, when I looked at tutorials or manuals, the ideal way to do it is run Nginx and Gunicon inside the same Docker, uh, have everything in the same Docker file. But for some reason, that just wouldn't work for me because of HTTPS um, certifications and all that. So what I had to do is I installed Nginx on the AWS instance itself, 
and then have uh, G Unicorn running on top of um, Django inside the Docker. So the Nginx connects to the Docker, which exposes uh, the port through G Unicorn. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's actually not that uncommon to have Nginx running directly on your host, but then everything else inside of containers. Although, you know, it sounds like you're sort of running Postgres, Redis, Unicorn all in one single container, not separate ones that are managed by like Docker Compose. Uh, yeah, it's one single container for now. Okay. Was that due to following some tutorial somewhere? Like what made you go down that route? Because that is kind of like, I guess you can say against the best practices with Docker, but you can still totally do it. Yeah, it is against the best practices, but like I said, there's always a technical side and a business side to things. Uh, I could spend a week and do everything the right way, but how much would it help? Right. Now, when it comes to things like SSL certificates, do you have that being handled with Nginx, or do you have that set up at like the AWS level? Oh, that was another nightmare that I had to face. So we use um, Netlify for the front end, and Netlify handles the SSL and HTTPS uh, all the certifications, so they handle that. Now the problem you face is <clears throat> you can't have an HTTPS website uh, calling to an API endpoint of an HTTP website, which is usually what uh, EC2 will be, AWS EC2 will be by default. So you, for installing that, we had to, or rather I should say I had to uh, install CertBot, and it was pretty easy to install it on Nginx, uh, the same thing wasn't working when Nginx was inside the Docker container. That's why I had to bring it out. So now the Nginx has, uh, using CertBot, I installed the uh, SSL, SSL certificate on the Nginx on the EC2 server and then connected that to Docker. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a, a very popular setup. Using CertBot is an amazing tool. Uh, Let's Encrypt is one of my favorite services probably in the last couple of years that came out. Now, going back to your server setup here, sounds like you are using AWS. You have at least one EC2 instance. Do you want to go over maybe some additional AWS services that you might be using? Uh, right now, we use only um, EC2 and S3, nothing else. Okay. And when it comes to that EC2 instance, uh, which operating system distro did you choose? Uh, Ubuntu. Okay. Is that the latest LTS version at, at whatever time you spun the server up? I think the latest version is 20, but I use 18. Okay, right, because 2004 just came out in April 2020, and if you started this like a couple months before that, it just wasn't out, right? Uh, yeah. I think the, the version that I saw when I created the EC2 instance was an LTS, so I just didn't go for it. Right. When it comes to that EC2 instance, uh, what are their machine specs on that, like CPU and memory? Do you recall that? Uh, it's just a free tier. So it's just one virtual CPU and one gig of memory. Oh, wow. So you have the whole Django app, Celery, Redis and Postgres, and Nginx, and Ubuntu, all running there on one gig of RAM. Yeah, I kind of killed a bunch of Ubuntu processors that I don't need. Uh, I kind of... So it, it's pretty weird, actually. It's, I was able to... Uh, so when you install Django on through Docker in, in the container, it installs a Python 3.8 image. Uh, I was able to kill a bunch of those processors out, which I don't need. Um, a bunch of them are monitoring like edge top and all that. So I, I removed all that. Uh, it kind of reduced the server load a lot. Um, initially it was using around 600 MB of uh, RAM just without anything running, just the, the Docker container running. Uh, but now it uses around 450. Wow. That's amazing. Like considering, you know, your app is not like a small app, right? It's like 200,000 plus lines of code 
probably many different Python libraries. Uh, it's kind of cool to see all of that is able to run on a T2 micro instance. Uh, yeah, so those are the kind of optimizations I like to do. Although it does help to, like you said, to have Celery to do a bunch of stuff. Um, it, it's not about having all these things on one platform. It's just how you manage to allocate resources. For example, we don't have our machine learning code running directly on the EC2 server. Uh, what we do is, um, and this is one of the Celery tasks. So every night, uh, I think around 11.30 PST to 2, 2.30 AM or even 3 AM sometimes. Uh, that's the time that we utilize for machine learning algorithms to run the machine learning code to uh, learn. Uh, we do not run it in the day. So it kind of balances out the load. Okay, so those machine learning algorithms that run on your data, I, I would imagine, I guess, that's very CPU intensive. Oh, yeah. Like, are we talking like full-blown maxes out the CPU core until it's done? <laughs> Uh, let me put it this way. I have a PC that has eight uh, cores and it maxes that out. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's pretty greedy, but, you know, it'll work as fast as uh, the hardware that you have, I guess. Yeah, but AWS is actually pretty resilient to all this. Uh, like, if you have a process running on your PC or a laptop at 100% for a long time, it tries to end that process. Um, but AWS is actually pretty resilient to all this. Uh, so if, even if you have something running at 100% for a long time, even ours, uh, it doesn't crash. That's a pretty good thing. Yeah, definitely a good thing. Although, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when it comes to those T2 micro instances, don't they still have that like CPU credit thing where if you use a CPU for a very long time, then you're going to lose CPU credits and then like your performance is going to suffer until those like regain I know that was like a popular thing that Amazon did a couple of years ago. I'm not really sure if they still use that on their T2 instances. Can you give us the heads up on that? Like, did you run into situations where performance wasn't very good at like 80 MPSD the next day because you've like ran out of credits? Uh, no, I, as far as I think, we haven't exceeded the free tool limit. Okay. Yeah, that's something I'll just drop into the show notes. It's like T2 CPU credits or something like that. There's definitely some documentation around that one. Very cool, though. Uh, actually, we never even got a chance to talk about the traffic. So what type of traffic are we dealing with here? Uh, so it's mostly right now, since we're trying to still promote, it's mostly traffic. We, the traffic that we get is through people we connect with. Um, and right now we have about, I would say, 20 to 30 people visiting the website regularly. Uh, on a, so that 20 to 30 per week. Um, they come on the site and, you know, scan their portfolios. Um, so all the website does right now is it allows you to paste a link, uh, like I said, to your job, uh, sorry, to your project, um, and then add some details about the job description that you're comparing with, and it gives you the results. That's all it does right now. Uh, but uh, we have hired two more people to help us out with this, uh, since now everything is opening and I got to go back to the office and everything. These two people will be focusing on building more features uh, adding a full-fledged portfolio with your project listed out, adding a feature where you can upload your job post, adding a feature where you can see your own insights compared to everyone else's, um, and a bunch of other things like industry insights. So a lot of features are coming up. So maybe then we will have to kind of separate out the backend and actually start paying for stuff. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, well, what do you get with AWS? You get like 12 months of the free tier. So you have about another six months, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if it'll stick with AWS, though. 
right? Did you think about maybe using someplace else instead of them? Or did you just use them because of the free tier initially? Yeah, I just started using them because of the free tier, but I kind of don't trust AWS that much. Uh, I have had this issue before where uh, I think it was my last project last year where it was the Ruby on Rails backend. And for some reason, it just spun up one of the Postgres RDS, uh, you know, the database. And I was charged like 200 bucks a month for no reason. And there was zero IO requests. It was just the uptime that the cost was. And after a lot of back and forth argument, they said we can't do anything because we don't have the logs. I don't know how it was created, so I kind of don't trust AWS with that. Maybe it requires a bit more management from my side, but I don't know if I have the time for that. So I'll just, maybe we'll just switch to DigitalOcean. Yeah, when it comes to billing stuff, AWS is like the most convoluted and confusing platform ever made. I mean, reliability-wise, the services are really good. Like, you know, you can't really expect much more. But yeah, the billing stuff is crazy. Yeah, and even the customer support is not very helpful. Like when I asked them, and it, it was a pretty detailed uh, email that I sent them with all the logs that I could find uh, about everything, my activity, that yes, I did go to that page, but I didn't press create. Um, I don't know how this was, this RDS instance was created. And their replies literally included the knowledge base uh, links like please go to these four links and see how you can i'm like I, i've already done that and it's pretty useless right like dear valued customer and then paste script basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no DigitalOcean support it's amazing like you know i'm not just saying that because they're like a sponsor of the podcast like they're not i just happen to use them but it's pretty cool that you don't even need to pay extra for support you just sign up ask them questions and they'll help you out now, as for this EC2 instance for now, though, did you set this thing up by hand or did you use some type of like configuration management tool like Ansible or something else? Uh, no, everything manually. Okay. Did you look into using some type of uh, tools that may help you out in that regard or was it just like following tutorials until you get it up? Uh, I mean, yes, following some tutorials and I have used AWS before, so it was previous knowledge as well. Right. Yeah, you mentioned also you do have that uh, S3 bucket set up for those user uploads. So you just went around and like poked around in their web UI, clicked things until uh, it worked. And then once it's set up, kind of like off to the races. Uh, so I do have to accept one thing. I was not able to figure out the bucket policy. Uh, I, I didn't know what was happening, but there is, a, I don't know what it's called, but I think it's a bucket policy generator that they have a tool. You could literally select your IAM name, your role, whatever you have, and then give access to that. So that's what I did and it worked. Oh, okay. By the way, speaking of uh, S3 and EC2 and maybe some other AWS things, you mentioned earlier that you do send emails out through Celery. Is that going through Amazon SES or do you have a different service for that? Uh, Mailgun. Okay. Did you go into like some deep research phase on choosing that or did you just pick it because you have prior experience? Uh, no, I did actually do a bit of research and Mailgun has the best free uh, service. So I just picked that. Right. Definitely can't go wrong in that regard, especially with transactional email. Like they're a very well-known company and uh, free is good. <laughs> so what about maybe some other SaaS tools that you might be using here? You know, you, you kind of mentioned Sentry at the beginning of this episode. Uh, are you using anything else for logging a metrics? And honestly, we didn't even talk about this one yet, but, you know, is your service free to use or do people need to pay for it? Uh, right now, it's free to use. Once we have all the full-fledged features, then we can ensure that people are coming back. The biggest thing about paying is you need to have enough to 
retain customers you know we don't have that we can't ask them to pay for this right now so later on maybe three or four months down the line it might get paid it might be a become a paid service but not right now right and if it does become a paid service in the future do you plan to use stripe or something else uh yeah stripe Okay, so what about uh, other SaaS tools that you might be using? I, I, at the beginning of the show, you kind of mentioned Sentry, but thinking back, I think you said like you're not even using Sentry. Like instead of using Sentry, you made your own like logging solution. Is that how that worked? Yes, for Django, it's my own. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a tool. It's just a visual representation of the logs that I that's actually being logged in the Django backend. Uh, Sentry, I use Sentry for for React. Oh, okay. So Sentry just for the front end code. Yeah. Okay. And how do you like that so far using Sentry? It's pretty annoying, but it's pretty helpful. Like I had to turn it off because they send emails to every 404 request that happens on the website. And that's pretty annoying. I had like 28 emails in one hour. Uh, like if you figure things out, how to use things. And I think Sentry has a lot of things that's locked out because of the paid option. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty helpful. At least you know what's going wrong, even though you can't actually fix it through Sentry. You have to go back manually to the repository and fix it. Right. It is kind of nice, though, having that stack trace be sent to you. And then it's like, oh, by the way, you know, just go here. And when this happened, this user was using this device and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, uh, one more thing I would like to add is in React, you can set up error boundaries. So basically, when something does go wrong, um, like if the javascript code fails or some 404 error happens and you don't have something to handle that error uh, it just crashes the whole application and it shows up like a red stack trace page to the user and that's not good um, so sentry is a good way to ensuring user experience at least it says something went wrong instead of giving them a red page right so i've actually never used sentry in react before are you saying they sentry kind of just inserts it's it's more like a more human readable error page instead of showing you a stack trace yeah yeah it kind of gives gives its own it's not exactly a 404 page it's more of an error page that shows but it, it at least it doesn't crash the whole application you can still click on the menu and the navigation right okay so now maybe we can switch gears and transition into you know what your deployment process looks like so Let's say, you know, hacking away on the project, adding new cool things. Like, what does it look like to get code from your dev box up into that EC2 instance? Uh, so since it's just me right now, um, I, I don't have a very extensive CI/CD process set up. Uh, but I did start using Circle CI. I felt that it was pretty complicated just for one uh, developers. But now, since we have two more people joining, we'll probably start using that more. Um, so it's basic that uh, basic workflow that I follow. It goes from dev to uh, staging to prod. This is just three steps. Okay, so maybe we can break that down a bit more. Like when you push code initially, does it go up to like GitHub or GitLab or somewhere else? Uh, yeah, it goes to GitHub. I did have GitHub action set up, but that it created a whole bunch of issues that I I tried to figure out what was going wrong, but I just didn't want to give it more time, so I kind of do it manually now. So all I have is I push my code from uh, my PC to GitHub and I go to the EC2 instance and I have a script set up. So all that script does is pull pull the GitHub code, uh, basically just git pull, uh, remove all the migrations and whatever is necessary, all the PYC files, and then just uh, relaunch the Django server. Uh, or I should say Docker servers. Right. Yeah, I was going to say all this is inside of Docker. So 
do you end up then just rebuilding a new Docker container live on your server for every deploy? Or does it get sent over to somewhere like ECR and AWS? Uh, no, it's actually built right there on the EC2 server. But uh, the thing is, if you don't have any major changes, like if you don't change the environment variables or some major change in the application, it pretty much launches in within 30 seconds. Okay. So when it comes to that script then on your server, do you just basically do like a like a Docker stop on that one container and then just start it again with a new command? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you kind of mentioned that if there's not much going on, it takes about 30 seconds. Is that full 30 seconds end-to-end from, you know, the website being down until it's available again so people don't get some type of, like, Nginx error? Uh, yeah, it takes about 30 seconds from Docker stop to Docker uh, up. Right. Okay. And then uh, as for other things too, like, you know, running database migrations or I don't know if you use this, but do you run the Django collect static command to, you know, static uh, or I guess compile your assets? Uh, I used to. I kind of uh, don't now because, I mean, I don't use Django for that. I think all collect static does is collect all the static contents like the CSS and, uh, you know, assets like images, but none of that is being served to the end user. So I don't really see the point in doing that. So I kind of removed that. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I forgot about that. You mentioned that your front end is being completely hosted by Netlify. Uh, do they just handle all of that for you then? Uh, yes, actually, they have a CLI uh, that you could just use. All you have to do is Netlify deploy uh, hyphen hyphen prod. It just pushes it to the live server. That's it. Awesome. Yeah, you can't really go wrong with uh, a process that simple, right? Run command and you're done. Yeah. Now, how do you deal with things like secrets, like API keys on the back end? Do you have those just sitting up in the private repo on GitHub? Hopefully not. Or do you just send them to your server in a different way? Uh, so right now it's on the ENV file. So the ENV file is not tracked by GitHub, but I am planning on moving it to a better way. I think I'm looking into different methods to do that. One of them is passing them in the Docker commands when you initialize the Docker uh, container. Uh, it's either that or moving the env file to a different place, like uh, S3 or something. Right. So like the process right now, I guess you maybe just go into your server directly, you know, change around those environment variables if needed. And then the next time you start your app, you just reference the env file and it's all good. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty popular way to do things. And honestly, if you were working with something like Heroku or, you know, another managed solution, it's like typically to get those environment variables in there you know, you just use their CLI command to add those environment variables. So, you know, your process is not that dissimilar to how that would work. Yeah, um, I kind of forget where it was, but there's an option to add environment variables other than Docker. I think it was somewhere in EC2. I don't exactly remember where it was. Oh, no, that was in Netlify. Never mind. Right. Yeah, like when it comes to environment variables and things like that on like a, a Linux system, I mean, you can throw them into like a systemd unit file, but it sounds like that's not even play here because you just run a Docker command. Yeah. Now, speaking of that Docker command, do you have it all configured and set up to where if that EC2 box were to be rebooted, does your container or, you know, all the services in that one container come up automatically? Uh, No, just the Nginx. I have to manually run the Docker. Okay. Is that something you're moving towards fixing or you just don't worry about it because like how often do you really reboot that box? Uh, I've actually never shut it down since it's it's been running for about four months straight now. So I don't really see the point in doing that. When we do have to do that, when we have different servers running, I think now when we get new team members, we will have a test environment set up. 
Um, so maybe then we will have to shut this down to, you know, to be within the 750 hours of the free tier service or at least minimize what we have to pay. Uh, based on our traffic, we don't get many people at, after midnight, at least till 4 o'clock in the morning. So maybe that's the time we give them the test uh, test bed to do whatever they want and then relaunch this. So maybe uh, then when we have to shut down the actual production server a lot, uh, then we might have to automate the Docker service. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Also, uh, you did mention earlier that you do have a staging server. Is this something that you spin up and then you manually test your app by looking at it, determining that it's okay, and then you just go to production afterwards, like manually? Yeah, yeah. If if I'm pretty confident that it's going to uh, not break anything in the actual production environment, then I pretty much push it to the production environment directly. I know that's a bad practice, but uh, it saves time. But if there's something like even a simple thing, like I remember cha- changing a model from uh, JSON field to array field, which uh, array field is supported only by Postgres. And it basically broke my whole backend because it wouldn't let me start the Django service inside the Docker. It just kept giving me errors saying a bunch of things like you don't have a default value, you can't uh, cast this. Uh, JSON field of already existing uh, roles to array field. Uh, so in that case, I send it to a staging. In that case, I use the staging environment and then use that to see what I can do and balance it out. Because right now, the frequency of database backup is about, I think, six days or a week, which is not that frequent. So I don't want to lose any changes that I've made. So I make sure whenever I push changes to the production that might break the database, I make sure it's after the backup. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And as for those backups, then do you just do something like a SQL dump and put them onto S3? Like, what's your strategy for that? Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Okay. Now, you kind of mentioned that, you know, those six days or you know, longer than that is kind of a long time. Is there a, re- a reason why you don't do it every day? It's it's just, I, I have to accept it's just me being lazy because uh, I just figure out that you know, the information is there on Firebase anyway. So I might as well use that and repopulate it. So I kind of didn't bother to back it up every day. Um, seven days works right now because we don't have a lot of users. 20, 30 people is not a lot of users. Uh, but when we do get traffic, I think we will have like a six hour or seven hour cycle of backing up the database. Right. And when you say those files being uploaded, like they're in S3, which is basically... I don't know, one of the safest places a file could be located on the internet, I guess, in terms of like reliability. So you can recreate your data from that is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. But then maybe down the line, if you ever introduce payments and stuff like that, yeah, six hour cycle would be uh, probably a good idea. Yeah. So when it comes to other things related to disasters, like unexpected events, do you have any alarms set up on uh, like using CloudWatch with AWS? Like what happens if the CPU load goes too high for too long or, you know, the disk space is about to run out? Oh, I did think about using CloudWatch, but that's I think that's a paid service again, so I didn't want to do that. Uh, there is something called Django Health Check. I think that's what called, or Django Health Test or Check. That pretty much does that for you. So the moment Django uses more than, and I should say Django uses like most of the resources on the EC2. It's not Postgres or Celery using it. Um, so once the usage of CPU goes beyond 90%, which is usually what happens when the machine learning code is running, or the RAM usage goes beyond 80%, which is literally 800 megabytes, 
or any other resources. Uh, SSD, we haven't even reached close to the limit. I think it's 8 gigs. So Django Health Check actually even has an API endpoint that you can literally run every night and see what the status is. Uh, so that helps a lot. And Django Health Check sends you uh, notifications. And, and that's where... Um, so it actually creates a log in the log uh, using logging Django default logging and that's where I fetch it from the logging and see it on my front end that I customize. Okay, so if you do need to check up to see if it went down, you just check your custom admin backend. You don't get notified through email or something like that? Uh, you could set it up, but I didn't. Okay. So on that note, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are for building this project? Uh, I think the biggest thing is have a test environment and make small changes to code. Do not, do not add... Uh, do not do the mistake that I did. Do not add 15 different views, four different uh, app, Django apps uh, and a bunch of other pages and then upload it all at once and something breaks. You won't know what went wrong. Um, so just make small changes and very differential changes and upload that or push that to GitHub. The other thing I would say is, I don't know how many people actually follow this, but uh, even I don't follow this because... <laughs> Uh, it's not easy to do it all the time, but it's recommended that you create something independently and then integrate it to your Django application. For example, the S3, create a Python script independently, see if it runs well, and then it uh, use Bottle 3 and then integrate it into Django application. Don't um, create an app create a script in Django, start running everything. You won't know what went wrong. You won't uh, you won't know if it's the configuration in Django or if, if it's the border 3 app itself um, because there's other things like you have to do AWS configure and even that doesn't work sometimes. There's a bunch of things that you need to look into. So take it step by step. Make sure the connection is right. Make sure the code runs and then make sure you push it into Django and then make sure you have the environment variable. So uh, just take it step by step. Yeah, no, I, th I think that is uh, fantastic advice, right? It also forces you to kind of uh, build your application before you build the UI. You know, you're never really going to get in trouble where you end up having, uh, you know, like the Django equivalent of like a 500 line controller file for one of your views, you know? It's like all of that logic is going to be tucked away on the back end where it should be. And then like, you know, your views can be uh, pretty small and lightweight, only calling the functions they need to. So it just makes, I guess, for a better app design overall. Yeah. Cool. So, Shittage, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Uh, so the GitHub repos are actually private, um, but you can see our website on www.creativehire.co. Uh, that's not .com, but that's .co. And we have a Facebook page. It's called Creative Hire. Uh, we are not on Twitter currently, but we are on LinkedIn with the same name, Creative Hire. Okay, and that's one word, no spaces? Uh, yes, that's one word, no spaces, and the edge is capital. Nice. I'll make sure to drop those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.